stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. I get it, though. I get it. I get it. Being kind to the earth isn't always easy. I try my best to buy the environmentally friendly products, but a lot of them suck. They do. Those green dishwasher cubes, they never work. You'd be better off handing your plates beneath the table for the dog to lick. I bought environmentally friendly ant killer. Yeah, it was so friendly, it never worked. I want raid results. Kills bugs dead. The only way to kill them, use a nut, was to squash the bastards with the bottle. Well, you know that voice. If you don't, you probably think, well, that guy must be from Glace Bay, Nova Scotia. He is. Ron James, veteran Canadian stand-up comedian, writer, actor, and just announced by the Laugh Shop Calgary, he will be in town for an exclusive concert presentation November 26th through 29th. Tickets are on sale now. They're going to go fast. Go to laughshopcalgary.com and head over to ronjames.ca for everything else Ron James related. And uh, speaking of Ron James, he's on the line with us here this afternoon, as a matter of fact. Ron James, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Rob, great introduction. Thank you, buddy. Well, I appreciate uh, that. And yes. I'm, in, uh, I'm actually, uh, yeah, I was uh, born in Glace Bay, lived there until I was nine. Then I was raised in Halifax, uh, went to Acadia University, then uh, headed uh, to the big smoke, uh, Toronto, got into Second City and did my L.A. run for three years with those guys, and then I yeah. uh, came back to Canada and started a stand-up career at the ripe old age 36. <laughs> and here I've been in it for 25 years, and you know what? It's the first time I've played a club in 20. Wow, really? Yeah, yeah. I did my second special. I've always played the Epcor Center, of course, with COVID. It's put a torpedo in the bow of all my uh, live tours. Okay. And uh, I couldn't be happier, man, because so much of my stuff in the in the days gone by over the last 20 years has ha- has had to go from the page to the stage. And uh, when I was doing my specials, that was a clip you played from one of them. Yeah. Uh, it would literally go from the page to the stage. So to have an opportunity to road hone my material again, like I did in the old days in the clubs, uh, is just a gift. And uh, it's kind of the silver lining in the COVID cloud for me. Sure, you know, the audience are going to have face masks and the cost of the ticket is 20 bucks less than my theater shows and there'll probably be a thousand people less. But uh, I'm really looking forward to doing uh, a 90 minute to a two hour show when I'm on that stage. I really can't wait. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are excited about it, too. So let's let's talk Thanks, about how dis- disruptive this year has been, uh, you know, for those in, in not just comedy, but just really entertainment in general. What's 2020 been like for you? Well, it's uh, it's been a wake-up call, a devastating blow. I mean, uh, you know, for all these people who who uh, nurtured and, and built careers with due diligence at an already uh, feast and famine uh, context, uh, to have COVID come along and, and scuttle live performance around the entire globe. I mean, wherever you played, clubs, theaters, bars, stadiums, they they pulled the drawbridge up. So you had to adapt. Right. And so yeah. I've done a few shows uh, online from my uh, from my living room and uh, we drew pretty good crowds. But uh, yeah, I always feel like I'm in some capsule orbiting the Nebulon galaxy, you know, delivering my set to Earthlings because the <laughs> the intimacy has gone. And yeah. that's what's so rewarding about this calling. It's the life force. And um, 
I think that's one of the things that clearly people miss more than anything is being part of a community and being connected. And that uh, symbiotic relationship between stand-up and audience uh, is crucial. And uh, when you can't hear the laughs because you're playing to your computer, it's it's somewhat peculiar. But uh, that being said, uh, I've uh, I've tried to you know maintain an optimism in the face of this plague and uh, just take it every day one step at a time. Yeah, and I think that's you know that's that's all we can do, right? Otherwise, it's all we can do. I mean, uh, yeah. uh, you know, it's gone squirrely south of the border, and uh, because when. Uh, when me trumps we, everybody loses. And, uh, yeah, you know, people are entitled to uh, their individual freedoms. But uh, I think uh, without devolving into wingnut conspiracy theory, <clears throat> let's just uh, think about our neighbor and do what's right. Um, you know, for, um, for a corner of the globe that fancies itself on being very religious, they forgot one of the Ten Commandments, which is do unto others and you would have them do unto you or love thy neighbor as thyself. And uh, I got to tip my hat to Canada, you know, even though the bovine statements of that Davis groomed silver spoon Dauphin in Ottawa are starting to get in my wick. Uh, it's uh, it, it, it's uh, mandatory that uh, that we look at the long game because it's, you know, this this COVID thing, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. And it's interesting, uh, I kind of think back to my parents' era, you know, <clears throat> my mother's 88 and uh, my dad passed away a few years ago uh, at the age of 85. And I mean, you know, these these people, the greatest generation were raised in the heart of the Great Depression. And uh, the light at the end of that tunnel was, <laughs> you know, the battlefield carnage of World War Two. Oh, geez, you know, do a cartwheel. Happy times are here again. <laughs> you know, but this generation we're in, cripes, we don't even have the patience for minute rice anymore. <laughs> So to uh, focus on the long haul and know that you have to, um, you got to keep your eyes on the prize, uh, which is, uh, you know, redemption from, you know, from the pandemic, you know, it demands responsibility. And uh, I tip my hat to my brothers and sisters in the stand-up comedy tribes. Uh, You know, they already lived, you know, a a frugal existence and, you know, with a feudal payday. And uh, and this has been uh, one hell of a blow. So uh, you know you gotta you gotta hang in there. You gotta stay tough and um, look at this time as a time to be creative and uh, and to mend your nets and write new material because God knows there's a, there's an awful lot of opportunity for that. <laughs> yeah, there is. You know, and it's interesting you touched on it how how we perceive ourselves, how we perceive our neighbors to the south. And it's, you know, it's it's easy. You, you can unite Canadians behind the idea of, you know, having a good laugh at, at the expense of our neighbors to the south. I don't know that we're always as as eager to laugh at ourselves. And and I, I, I like I your approach, the, right, that that's something that, that you, you, you press. We should be able to laugh at ourselves. Well, that's an astute point you've just made. You know, Canadians uh, never wanted their comedy mean, you know, but it's a comedian's job to tip the apple cart, not ride in it. And uh, not to say that I'm endorsing, uh, you know, aggressive, mean comedy, but you have to speak truth to power. And you don't look down in the gutter. You look up at the guy in his golden throne uh, mm-hmm. and uh, or the powers that be, and you hold them to account. And, um, uh, you know, I think uh, I think because Canada, for a certain degree, you know, lacks a rebel soul, right? I mean, without getting too <laughs> esoteric about the whole thing, we weren't sired in the smoke and fire of revolution. 
You know, America was. Look at the phrases that came from 1776. These are the times that try men's souls. Give me liberty or give me death. Where up here, you know, we always have time for Tim Hortons. I mean, it's a different vibe, man. And, uh, you know, Canada was the benign delivery from the womb of Mother Britain, while America's birth was, a, you know, a, a cracked baby breech birth that chewed off its own umbilical cord. It's a whole different vibe. And I think there's a deference for the rebel soul in the States and laughing at themselves because there's so much there is so much social contention. But I don't think we're immune from that either. Uh, clearly, we're not with BLM and with um, uh, uh, with indigenous issues that desperately need to be addressed and with uh, holding power to account, the politicians that be. And in a country of 37 million people, uh, you don't have the luxury. Comedians here don't have the luxury they have in the States. I mean, you can have half of America hating your act and still have six times the population of Canada buying a ticket to see you. And 37 million people, you have to be an equal opportunity offender. So uh, I think you have to touch on everybody. And uh, But... uh, to be enlightened and to move the world in the right direction rather than defiantly march backwards in the um, intolerant armies of the status quo, that's that's not a comedian's job. A comedian's job is to try as best as they can to move the world forward while getting laughs, right? And that little bit that mm. you played, that clip, I mean, that's the way everybody feels. And <laughs> so we try to find some kind of common denominator with the audience and um, – I think stories, uh, you know, I, I came from a storytelling culture. And uh, if you can find something that people can have their hang their hat on uh, that happened to you, which they relate to, it kind of, um, it's, a, it's a bandage for the fractures that uh, have increasingly polarized us. I think, too, you know, there, there's something to be said for poking fun at, at Canada. When you are Canadian and when you know Canada, it's... It's something we should embrace, right? Because in in order to really, you know, have good material, to really kind of tell those stories in a funny way, you got to have a knowledge and a deep appreciation for this country and, and its different regions and what unites us and what makes us different. Because then it's real and it resonates. And I think if we ah, can kind of get over that, that fear, right, of just that might offend us or don't poke fun at, at, at that group or, or that region, that it's it's about you. I think it's it's something that can unite us as Canadians when we, when we're able well, to laugh the, at it, ourselves. It, 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 yes, and uh, the ability to laugh at yourself to me is a sign of strength. Yeah, yeah. You know, not everything's so sacred, right? And uh, you know, toppling sacred cows has its virtue. But like the great uh, comedian Billy Conley says, "What's the intention behind the joke? What's the intention?" And yeah. uh, I always want people leaving the theater. Uh, to have a spring in their step and to feel a hell of a lot lighter than they did when they came in. And I think that's a comedian's job um, uh, is to, is to carry the knapsack on the life journey for the 45 minutes, 90 minutes, two hours. They're on that stage. It's our job to lighten the load for a while. Now, is it true that it was Billy Connolly that, that inspired you to do stand up? Cause you'd done SCTV. You'd done a lot of acting, done some writing, uh, and as you say, uh-huh. you kind of got a, a late start in, in stand-up. How, how pivotal was Billy Connolly in that? Huge, in fact. Yeah. Um, I uh, I was broke uh, and out of work for a year in Los Angeles. The series I went down to do for Imagine TV was canceled. And uh, uh, I did what most actors do is they, uh, you know, they go to auditions. They either get them or they don't. And uh, it was a crucible. Uh, the tough lessons learned in Los Angeles were instrumental 
in me shifting the paradigm when I came back home uh, and I learned the, you know, the, the fundamental lesson of the American dream, which is the individual is responsible for their own happiness. Right? Mind you, that's been corrupted to a point where it's been equated with, uh, you know, the rabbit pursuit of mammon with these, you know, Gordon Gecko mandates for greed where more will never be enough. I mean, that's when we have capitalism to thank for that uh, and Wall Street. But ultimately, uh, my time in Los Angeles, uh, I uh, read a lot of Joseph Campbell in those days. And uh, the show we were doing, comedians used to come on. And I remember watching them and stuff and going, well, geez, I don't know. Uh, I was funny my whole life. Maybe I can, maybe I can answer this uh, call that was stewing in me. And I saw Billy Conley's first 90-minute HBO special. And uh, I laughed so hard. Uh, I lost my mind. And and, and he was singing the song of his Tartan tribe in all its beautiful fractures. And uh, uh, it was was an epiphany. uh, I'm sure that it's the same way after that show was over. I'm sure it's the same way that people who claim they've been beamed aboard a spacecraft by aliens feel when they've been uh, dropped down to the cornfield uh, where they were snatched. Uh, the world was never the same. And uh, I thought, this is amazing. Look at the way this man flies. He's taking flight. And I had an opportunity to thank him for that uh, at Just for Laughs in 2007. I was doing a concert performance there, and so was Billy at another theater. And uh, uh, we were at an after-show party outside, and it was nice in the summertime. And he doesn't usually go to those things, but he was standing there, right? And uh, looking every inch the uh, the sage that wandering pilgrims would approach for wisdom, you know, he had that you know that long white hair and the custard goatee, and he was chewing on a cigar. And uh, my producer at the time, Lynn Harvey, who produced all my nine specials and uh, and the series we did together, she had a couple glasses of wine and went to Billy and said, "Look, uh, uh, my uh, uh, my partner here." Uh, Look, he really wants to thank you. And I went up to him. I said, look, I just got to, I said that, that uh, the only reason I'm here is because I saw you in 1991 uh, during uh, a pretty bleak period of my life. And uh, I said, your performance made me want to do this work. And he said, he said, that great. Uh, uh, Thank you very much. He's very uh, humbled by the whole thing. I said, let me ask you, how did a Glaswegian welder from the docks in that city, that working class town become an international success story. And he pulled a cigar out of his mouth and his eyes lit with this defiant fury. He said, that's a question about fame. To hell with fame. Just sing your song, sing your song, sing your song. And that's it. Just sing your song. Because everybody was always telling me that my Canadian content was a liability, you know? Uh, you know, you got to go to the States. You got to go to the States. Well, I, I chased the dream down there. And when I came back, uh, my wife and I at the time, we wanted to raise our children here. Uh, and, uh, you know, I didn't want her calling George Bush Sr.'s wife uh, nanny or grandma. <laughs> I wanted her to be schooled here, and they both were. And, yeah, the country's not perfect, you know. Uh, there's a lot to do with the national narrative that has to be redefined and rewritten. And we got to keep our eye on the prize. And, uh, you know, what you believe in the country is worth fighting for. 
But, uh, you know, that sounds so lofty when really what I'm trying to do is get laughs. But singing my song was the soul note that I heard in my travels across the big wide open. So when I came back to Canada from Los Angeles, I had uh, three things I wanted to achieve. I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I no longer wanted an agent. And I wanted to create my own TV series. Well, within five years, I did it. But it didn't happen overnight. It was this victory in baby steps. It was one kilometer driven and one gig at a time. And I I knew that I, I... I knew that there was something going on when I felt this this um, metaphysical drop kick to the solar plexus when I was traveling around the frozen lip of Gitchigumi in the dead of February playing Lonesome Sentinel strung along the, uh, the granite strip of Lake Superior. They were, you know, church basements, schools, legions, gymnasiums with sound systems only a mind could love. You know, this local guy loved my gig, and he gave me a, a, a seven-and-a-half-pound sirloin tip moose roast after the show. <laughs> and I remember thinking, boy, you, you got to love that, man. You know, somebody gives you a brown paper bag gripping blood in Las Vegas, it's probably got the head of a teamster in it. <laughs> so I – and and I heard, really, the heartline hum of people in place in that desolate corner of Canada in the dead of February. And – uh so I kept booking gigs myself. I eventually fell into the company of a of a great producer, and we started small with half a dozen theater gigs in eastern Ontario. And I got to say, brother, the Canadian West was so good to me. And as an Atlantic Canadian, we, we owe it a debt of gratitude, man. I mean, look, when oil was 461 bucks a barrel... Every time a car blew up in Baghdad, there were two new trucks in every Albertan's driveway. Mm-hmm. You know, I was coming out for encore dates at the Epcor Center and the, uh, with 1,700 people or going up to Fort Mac for half a dozen sold-out shows. And uh, it was the dream made manifest. And I loved it. You know, I loved the weather. I loved the country. I loved going down to southern Alberta where the wind is born. And then up in the north in the patch, and everybody was making money. And, yeah, everything does end, and people have to shift the paradigm and try to adapt to a never-changing planet. But those golden days in the land of the second chance, uh, as far as I'm concerned, inspired, uh, inspired the best of my nine specials called Quest for the West, which I shot at the Epcor Center in 2006. Well, it was just such an exciting time to be there. I connect yeah, with okay. brothers of another day, uh, uh, you know, soldiers of the 70s who I went to university with at Acadia who who found their second chance out there and created families and made a living and got into the professions they wished. And, uh, <laughs> you know, the West, man, it's it's cool country. It's soul-stirring. And I always go down to Head Smashed In Buffalo Jump, too just to commune with the spirit of the land or I'll go up into the Turner Valley or uh, of course the mountains and then Jasper. And uh, I've got a book coming out in October. It's my first one with Random House and the West features very prominently in it. Uh, It's called all over the map uh, uh, rants. uh, What's it called? All over the, all over the map ramblings and ruminations from a Canadian road. 
We'll watch for the book. Uh, November 26th, three nights of shows at the Laugh Shop uh, at the uh, Blackfoot, laughshopcalgary.com, much more at ronjames.ca. It's going to be great having you back out west here. Looking forward to that. And uh, been great talking to you I today. Wait, Thanks brother. so much for joining us. Thank you so much. You know, I still have the same mandate I did when I started 25 years ago. If the ushers aren't wiping the seats after I'm finished, I haven't done my job. <laughs> there you go. All right, Ron James, thank you so much. Thank you, brother. All the Stay best, well. sir. Bye-bye. There you go. One and only uh, Canada's own Ron James uh, coming uh, to Calgary, November 26th, three nights of shows at the Laugh Shop. Get those tickets before they're gone. We got to take a break here. We are back with more right after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.